This is the 966, episode 103. Hello, Richard Wilson. We'll call this the cat inhaler episode. (laughs) Yes, this is the cat inhaler episode. We were just talking about feline issues right before recording. Richard's son has some, and I have some as well. Um, My cat has asthma. And so um, we're (laughs) trying to- And the cat inhaler. I learned something. Yep. Yeah, yep, I you always can say I, that it's really it's really a quite a contraption. <laughs> I always say I learned something on every episode. I didn't realize it would have to do with a cat inhaler. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cats, uh, of course, being a, a favorite pet in home animal in Saudi Arabia as well. I know many Saudis who have cats. Dogs are not as popular over there as they are here. Of course, it's so hot. So um, that's probably a reason. But yeah, and there are a lot of stray cats in Saudi Arabia, but they have done an amazing job at sort of mitigating that problem in the last few years alone, um, which is commendable because pre-2014, 2015 visiting there was kind of sad. It was like, you know, so many cats. I have a Saudi stray cat story. Okay. When my my dad uh, first got involved with Saudi Arabia with the U.S. Treasury and the Joint Economic Commission, which was involved in the 70s with um, infrastructure, sewers, roads, everything. It it was really a great relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. And then he was also involved with the AWACS deal. And they lived over there for four years, five years. And they adopted uh, a couple of Saudi cats, wild cats. Um, And all the cats in our house were always named Spice. So even when I grew up, you know, the cat was Spice. And then so every subsequent cat was Spice. So I don't know which iteration this was. But anyway, I think I was in grad school Um, when they they sent the cat home. And I picked it up at Dulles Airport and took it to our suburban neighborhood, much like your suburban neighborhood, you know, Um, and this wild cat from Saudi Arabia got out of the cage and loose in the neighborhood. I couldn't snows. I mean, I, I probably spent, I don't know, five hours trying to track that thing and chase it all over the neighborhood and, you know, corner it and it keeps running. So and, and needless to say, <laughs> I was permanently traumatized by coming to the U.S., um, but subsequently, you know, eventually we I, I got the cat, you know, it, it acclimated, it lived a happy life and at, uh, at at our house. But anyway, so we have some experience with wild, feral Saudi cats. That's why it's good. One of the reasons there wasn't social media back then, because I feel like it'd be really hilarious to document that, your five-hour pursuit of this wild Saudi All cat over the neighborhood. in America. Yeah. I can still remember where I caught it was behind the Sea Rouge yard, which is way over across the street. And uh, anyway, it was, you know, such fun. Saudi fun. We should do a cat episode. This is not going to be one of them. Unfortunately, 103 will not be an all cat episode, but it is funny to start (laughs) off with that. Um, Yeah, cats have a pretty good life here where I live, Richard. There's uh, there's there's no natural predators. There are no other cats as well around. So there's kind of king of the land, which is amazing. Um, I feel like it'd be very tough to be a cat in Riyadh in the summer, though. You're always looking out for shade uh, for any cool spot. Yeah. Anyway, great, <laughs> great start to 103. Sorry to everybody. Um, we do have a good episode this week. 
Mr. David Rundell will be joining us, author and former diplomat. We'll talk a lot about the legacy of King Salman. It's just a great conversation, kind of putting into context the King Salman's leadership in recent years. Just really, really fun and, and interesting with David. This is something I think that the 966 does well, and that is um, address and examine uh, aspects of Saudi Arabia that are very important, but probably aren't uh, fully assessed and don't get the attention it deserves. The role of King Salman has been enormous, not only in, in, in the current, you know, since he came to be king in, in January 2015, but historically going all the way back uh, through every generation and every decade of Saudi Arabia. And it's just a pivotal figure. I don't think many many non-Saudis know much about King Salman. He's a fascinating person and I think has done some extraordinary things in his lifetime. Mm -hmm. And everything these days is about Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, His Royal Highness, and because he's the young, dynamic leader, the leader of the future. Um, but King Salman is still king, and and he, you know, chose the Crown Prince to be Deputy Crown Prince and now Crown Prince. So he's the man. And so, yeah, just it's really it's a great discussion with David. We'll get to that in a minute. Before we do that, just thanks to everybody for. Uh, I mean, it's really overwhelming each week. Not overwhelming. It's wonderful each week, but it's it's uh, it feels overwhelming to get so much feedback and commentary and different, especially the compliments are really nice. Um, but we'll take anything. Any feedback you give us, we'll take thick skin, but um, just great feedback throughout the week. Um, and it's amazing to see sort of the viewership and, and listenership of this program grow. We're, it's only the 14th of September, but we've already eclipsed August's numbers, and August was uh, our best month yet. Each month is bigger than the previous month, but we're only halfway through this month, and so we're just, the growth is incredible. So thanks to everybody who is listening to this. It really is awesome. I can't say enough about it. Thank you. We are grateful. We and are I do feel I, I feel like we're ticking over in some ways in terms of just listenership and viewers and that sort of thing. So it's really, really exciting. Yeah, which is really kind of scary if you think about it, because it's just like more and more people are listening. We can't just come on here and yak Talk about, cats. about cats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to us wherever you're getting this podcast. If you're a first time listener, we have a lot of first time listeners that come in because they know somebody who's being interviewed in the program or they hear or see a segment. Hit the subscribe button so you can get this delivered to your phone. Obviously, it doesn't cost anything, but just kind of keeps the steady flow of content coming to you. It's hard to remember to go to all of these different shows and podcasts that you may listen to. So if you do that, it'll come directly to you. You don't have to think about it. It's just Richard and Lucian directly into your breadbasket and uh, makes it a lot easier. And so we actually do get some feedback saying, I'm glad I subscribed, have been listening to you for a while. But the subscription part was key because I now, you know, I don't have to think about when you guys are coming right. out. We do come out at the same time on at 7 a.m. in Riyadh, Friday morning, every Friday morning. But, um, you know, that's that's one way to get us directly to your your phone or computer. So we appreciate it. Uh, Richard, what do you think? Let's get to uh, our one big things. What's your one big thing this week? Absolutely. Uh, my one big thing was actually a holdover last week. Um, I did it on Hevolution, which I think is really cool. But <clears throat> I have thought about this, but actually the timing is better because the Alulu World Archaeology Summit uh, will take place from September 13th to the 15th. Uh, so essentially, when this comes out, uh, we'll be right in the middle of the, the archaeology summit, and it's being held at the Mariah in Alula, 
from Saudi Arabia, the Royal Commission for Al-Ula is organizing the summit, which will feature panel discussions and talks by international experts and, and pioneers in archaeology and cultural heritage. The summit will bring together 60 experts from around the world, and it's just not archaeologists, it's scientists, uh, preservationists, business leaders, I guess even some celebrities. Uh, Dr. Abdurrahman al-Suhebani, who's the RSCU's Royal Commission for Alulas, Executive Director of Archaeology, Conservation, and Collections, said, well, this is not a scientific conference where we discuss scientific problems related to the field of archaeology. This is a summit that intends to enable all archaeologists and those from other domains related to the field of archaeology, like museums and anthropology, uh, all the domains related to archaeology to come together and collaborate, unquote. <clears throat> um, another executive with the director uh, with the RCU, the, uh, Dr. Rebecca Foote, director of archaeology and cultural heritage research at RCU, had a very interesting quote. Quote, Northwest Arabia has often been overlooked as a place of cultural and civilizational importance in and of itself. For many years, its, important has been, its importance has been eclipsed by the nearby Fertile Crescent, Riverine Mesopotamia, and Egypt, and the marine civilizations along the Red Sea. Al-Ula was seen as just a region people passed through. However, we're now learning that Al-Ula was more than just a place to transit. It was a true nexus and a home for complex communities across thousands of years, unquote. Now, I did a, you, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to visit Al-Ula in March. And you'll get there yet, because I know you've tried four times now, I think. Um, and, and hopefully in this next trip, you're going to get to Neom, which would be awesome. We want, we want to hear about that. Um, but absolutely, the place, you, you know, when you get down into the history of the place, there's a crossroads, you know, 6,000 years ago, 8,000 years ago, uh, you know, was a, a, a sort of a, a really critical nexus point for an extended network extending from India to Europe. Um, just a fascinating place. The, the summit will focus on four major themes, identity, which examines heritage, resilience, which seeks to uh, clues from the past that can guide a future path. I guess that'd be sort of sustainability. Ruinscapes, which will touch upon uh, you know, paradoxes, practices, and dilemmas in, turn, in the archaeological field. And accessibility, which will look at elements of diversity, disability, and financial access. Now, <clears throat> Before I close up, this summit is actually interesting because it overlaps with Saudi Arabia's hosting of the 45th session of the UNESCO World Heritage Committee. Heritage Committee. This is the first time the kingdom has staged the event. So first time UNESCO has done the World Heritage Committee in, in Saudi Arabia. It started actually on September 10th and will go through September 25th. So you got a couple of things coming go, going on in terms of heritage and archaeology. I thought this was a really interesting story in and of itself because the archaeology is fascinating. By the way, the geology in Al-Ula is amazing. Um, but it, it, like so many things with Saudi Arabia, it wraps up a lot of different things. So you've got history, and which is sort of part and parcel with identity. And you see Saudi Arabia embracing its pre-Islamic era and its, its role as, a, as an important stop on crossroads historically, and it's sort of placed in the global narrative. So it's sort of talking about its history. You're also talking about soft power and prestige by hosting these events, by you know being a convener at the international level. I mean, this is a summit. This isn't a conference. These are these is a is a big deal, 
And the, and the third part, you can see the economy, the marketing of it. You know, this is this is a way to shine a light on the extraordinarily interesting uh, reasons you might want to go visit Saudi Arabia. Um, so anyway, I, I, you know, the, it's it's it was really it's a really interesting event going on out Ula. And uh, I'm sure we'll be covering it more. As we always say, if, you, if you're a subscriber to the Seustic Review, we've been covering this. And um, I'm excited to see what comes out of it. Great piece in Arab News as well, which uh, was included in the, the review. And, and you wanted to do your one big thing on this a week or two ago. And, things, and you mentioned this things kind of got stacked up on you. And, and, but this is now happening as we're recording this. This is, I think, day two yeah. of it. And then tomorrow will be the final day. Or maybe I have that update one day off. Anyway, really cool. And really cool that it coincides with its role in the UNESCO thing. There's been a lot of stuff going on with Al-Ula just in the last year, and not all of it is archaeologically related, but a lot of it is. There's seemingly new discoveries every month, if not more frequently than that. The development that's happening there is not the type of development you would expect really anywhere else in the world, because what Saudi Arabia seems to recognize with Al-Ula is the significance, archaeological significance, historical significance, and even modern day significance. I mean, you have the kingdom that wants to really be seen and, and fill the role as a center pivot for east and west, north and south. I mean, it, it really has always been that way. Al-Ula is, is a testament to that. So the development that's going on in Al-Ula is all stuff that must fit in and should fit into what is already there and has been there for centuries and millennia. So, you know, you'll see things like, hey, they're you know thinking about having a tennis tournament in Outlaw, but they, they'll show you the tennis courts. And it's not just on flat land, you know, tennis courts and lights. You have them within rocks and mountains. It looks so cool. That went viral on social media recently and got sent to me by a bunch of people. I was like, this is amazing. Um, don't have a lot else to add to this. Um, I do. I really do want to get to Al-Ola. I have not been there and I don't think it's going to happen this time either, sadly. Um, well, but you never, you never know. It's just, it, whenever it comes up, it's like you have one day and you have to leave right now. And it's like, oh, well, that's probably not the way to do it, but it's going to happen. I know it will. But yeah, will. Um, uh, this is just, I don't know. This is really cool. I mean, just in the last couple of days, the announcement of a equestrian village um, being built by AECOM. I mean, it just, it feels like it's, Al-Ola is changing, and then yet it's always going to kind of be the same, which is just so smart to do it that way. And I, I think that this conference is, you know, I'd like to see some stuff come out of it where there's, you have all the all these archaeologists from around the world that don't have the same challenges necessarily that, you know, Saudi and other people working in Saudi Arabia have, but they can take away from it what they want and need. It's a cool, this is, this is cool. Well, I mean, the only thing I can say is, is you know, I, I got to spend a day and a half or plus there at, uh, you know, a local, you know, bed and breakfast, essentially. Uh, I'd go back in a heartbeat. I'd mm -hmm. love to go see it again. It's just a lot of stuff to see, a lot of stuff to do. It's really fascinating. Yeah, looks looks so cool. Had to pass up, had to cancel a res at the Banyan Tree, I think it was, because there was just like not enough time to get there and back, which sucked. Um, but it's going to happen. I know it will. Um, and it's cool to know that if I go and not this time, but maybe next time, it's not as not going to change as much, you know, because Riyadh changes every time you go. It's unbelievable. But, you know, so anyway, <laughs> this is just it's just really cool. And um, yeah, I really liked that one big thing from 
I guess it was a few months ago now that you did just kind of sharing your experiences there. Um, stuff like that, I think is really interesting. And I think a lot of, well, I know a lot of people liked it. So, um, I do hope you get back there soon. We need to get that, that you need to get your stay to be a little longer than that. Cause I'm sure you, you saw a lot, but there's a lot there. So that's cool. Well, I want to, I want to hear about Neon when you get back. Yeah. Well, I don't think I'm coming back. I'm just going to go to Neon and stay, <laughs> <laughs> scout out some real estate. Um, good one, Richard. My one big thing this week, kind of a busy news week going on in Saudi Arabia. You've got the, and we'll get to a lot of it in yellow, which is why that section segment of this podcast is so cool. We get a, a lot of people say that, you know, sometimes we just skip ahead to yellow to get caught up because there's oh, that's cool. some, some weeks there's just so much going on. This is one of those weeks there's so much going on. You got the crown prince, you know, in India for the G20, the announcement of a huge deal with the U.S. So we're going to get to some of that stuff in a little bit, but it's hard to say that this is the one big thing for Saudi Arabia this week, but it's my one big thing this week. And that is Saudi Aramco's venture arm, Y Adventures, sort of the uh, the blue chip VC in Saudi Arabia. It's been around for a long time. Um, announced a raise of a, or an investment, excuse me, of $52 million in funding as the co-lead in a company called Mighty Buildings, which is a startup based in California that builds tech for prefabricated, environmentally friendly homes. And Wyatt co-invested with Bold Capital with participation by Coastal Adventures. Coastal Adventures is the, of course, the blue chip Sand Hill Road, BC. Um, that participated in an earlier round is, seems to have the Midas touch when it comes to investing in new companies really at any stage. Other investors in Mighty Buildings include KB Badgers, a South Korean firm investing in its uh, from its sustainability-focused fund. 20 investors in this round with Y Adventures in the lead. I think this is important and it's my one big thing because well, and actually, let me get to that in a second. So just a little bit about this company. Mighty Buildings is a 3D building construction technology company that makes prefab homes in a factory that are environmentally friendly and climate resilient. It uses uh, what it calls its patented Loomis material, which the company says is five times stronger than concrete and creates structures that can resist events like hurricanes and earthquakes. So that is really cool. Essentially what they're building is homes in a factory that are super strong and super resistant to climate change that can then be shipped places and assembled for cheaper that um, are better for the environment and everything else. Um, so just really cool coming. This was announced uh, two days ago and it I started looking at this company because this is a space that's been around really since about 2017, 2018 is when you first started to hear about 3D printing houses, but prefab houses have been around for decades and decades. You used to be able to order a you know house out of a magazine essentially, um, and they would ship the products to you. A lot of those houses are standing still today. So this isn't a new concept, but what they're doing and they have a lot of competition, which I'll get to in a second, but they're essentially building these really strong houses that you can then assemble very cheaply. And if you have the right place, you know, uh, if you're living in, for example, the Caribbean or Florida or Saudi Arabia, and you have like a lot of issues with climate change, you know, this house can potentially be cooler, stand up to winds and sandstorms or hurricanes, anything else. So um, just a really cool company. So getting into it a little bit, really the challenge with any startup is identifying a problem that creates a large market. And 
that's almost always, if not always, the second page of any pitch deck. And if it isn't the second page of a pitch deck, that's a huge red flag. You need to have a huge problem. And for this company, Mighty Buildings, the problem is really there's so many that fold into one. Housing, housing costs, durability of homes, sustainability of home materials, construction, everything really is just a cost thing. But these are all global problems. And when you have that in place, you typically look at the company and its solution to that problem by asking how like unique is this solution? So like you have the problem, that's good. You've got my attention, but how proprietary is the solution? How protectable is it with patents and licensing? Um, you know, if the answers to either, either of these questions are not varied, then there has to be some other market advantage, like a major lead in the space or a lot of VC money, a lot of, a lot of backing, really a, a head start in any way. So on this is sort of what got me interested. Beautiful website, everything else. A lot of money coming in from Wyatt, which is interesting because you know they're Aramco's VC arm, and but you have some other blue chip firms in there. The company claims its proprietary printed material, which is made of sixty percent recycled glass, is five times the strength of concrete, seventy percent the weight of concrete, and produces fewer carbon emissions during manufacturing. It's rated for winds up to one hundred and fifty miles an hour, compliant with the California Building Code, which is quite strict. Um, including Title 24 energy requirements and other reg standards. So they've kind of got a lot of things buttoned up with the company. It employs ultraviolet light to cure its material off-site. This allows for, quote, highly refined and, quote, unique shapes with a range of customization options. So Salmani Architecture may now be part of that build-out and part of their uh, um, products on offer. So little bit all over the place here but i just it's this is an interesting company it's a really interesting play for why adventures which does a lot of stuff in energy and and you know sustainability they have a focus on saudi arabia and relevancy to saudi arabia and that's i guess what you could call sort of the lucid model from the pif where you invest in a car company people drive cars all over the world evs are going to be a thing all over the world but you know, you have a little bit of a local interest. You want these things to be manufactured in Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, you want basically the company to be able to say, hey, like we are, uh, and this again ties into another yellow segment we're doing as well, but you know, it ties into the EV metals market and there's really a huge opportunity there. So um, yeah, I mean, there is absolutely interest in both from Y Adventures and from this company, Mighty Buildings and setting up a factory and starting to make the Middle East and especially Saudi Arabia, a hub for what they're doing. So, um, yeah, I mean, prefab homes have been around for a while, but this is this does strike me as different. Scale is going to be an issue. They also have a lot of competition um, just among some. You have Icon, Perry 3D, Cybe, Alquist 3D, Printed Farms, Nidus 3D. So there's a lot of people doing what they're doing. And I actually remember when I was in Riyadh in June, there was one of those advertisements on BBC for a house, for a company, I think the UAE invested in that was doing this in the UAE and building one whole house in the UAE to kind of demonstrate the compatibility with the local environment and everything else. But um, this is a fascinating move from Wyatt, because if this company is then going to be setting up in Saudi Arabia, manufacturing in Saudi Arabia, supplying some of these massive new developments, especially in residential um, development from Roshan and some of these other mega developers in Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia could actually be one of the biggest markets for this new company as it reaches scale. Um, that's sort of, I mean, that's, that's my one big thing. I think it's super interesting that this is, this space is very interesting because globally people need places to live. It needs to be a lot cheaper. 
uh, to do that. And so, yeah, I mean, this, this could be a winner for Wyatt, I think. Yeah. Um, that's just, I, I feel like, um, it's like an episode of shark tank. I feel like, you know, you know, I think I should offer you a residual or something. What are your sales? <laughs> Mr. Mr. Wonderful. Mr. Okay. Wonderful. I'd like yeah. a residual. <laughs> um, no, that was a good one. And and I think, it's, as you point out, it's emblematic of what Saudi Arabia is trying to do in general. And why it is, is interesting, as you as you mentioned, is sort of a sort of the granddaddy. I mean, it, it was established in 2013. So obviously before, uh, you know, Vision 2030, you know, $500 million venture capital firm investing in high growth tech startups has, you know, invested in more than 60 startups. It, you know, this is this is a $52 million race, which, of which, you know, why it didn't take all of it. Mm. Um, but so it's a little bit of money, but it's kind of cool. It's again, it's emblematic of what Saudi Arabia is doing. It's placing bets everywhere. And it has numerous vehicles to place these bets, Wyatt being one of them. And um, so, for example, you know, the Crown Prince launched a $200 million fund to invest in domestic international high-tech companies just recently. And, you know, it's going to be part of a new strategy that's going to be sort of headed by Kaust. Um, you know, in February at the Leap Conference, nine billion investments in technology sector. So they're, uh, you know, they're they, you know they're gauging their future. You know, wondering what the fourth industrial revolution means to them, and then targeting specific technologies that further their you know their homegrown economic priorities and 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 growth priorities. And and this is this is a really good example of it because. Um, I think there's a significant, there's a, one of the largest 3D printers is in KSA. I've got to get more details on that. So, for example, I saw, I remember a, an article about building a house, uh, a three-story house with a 3D printer. But that would have been with traditional materials, probably concrete or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a different deal. And uh, I think a little more far, farther along the evolutionary line in terms of uh, manufactured housing. Uh, but really interesting, really yeah. interesting. And like I said, Saudi Arabia is placing its bets everywhere. And it places, uh, places a lot of bets, it places a lot of big bets, a lot of little bets. And uh, some of them are going to, you know, tank horribly. And it hardly matters. You just have to have some percentage hit and you've changed your world. 100%. And you have, I mean, the sort of unspoken benefit of doing that, exactly what you described, making these bets all over, you know, because you want to have a local startup ecosystem. You want local entrepreneurship. It's hard to just generate that from nothing. We've, we've kind of discussed that on the podcast in previous episodes, but what happens when you invest in these companies and then they set up a factory over here is spillover effect and tech transfer. I mean, you have, you're going to start making these innovative 3D houses in Saudi Arabia. And then somebody that is working there saying, I got an idea on how to do a roof for this or a special way to, I mean, with houses, it's, you know, very complex. So, uh, or this is an innovative piping material that can go into it, you know, stuff like that. And then you have Saudi startups that essentially were germinated from this tech transfer. And that is a really good plan for Saudi Arabia. You can't force that to happen. It just happens. And one way to do that is just make these investments and have a way to have things kind of come over and say, well, you, this is a huge market. Take advantage of this. And then, you know, you never know. You've got contribution to local content goals that Saudi Arabia wants to hit. This is one way, maybe the best way to do it. So I, this is just cool. And 
it's not the biggest thing happening in Saudi Arabia this week by a long shot, but it's something that grabbed me in for a few hours looking into this company and all the competition here because the space could be massive. And if this is a winner, this is a massive market size. This is huge. So anyway, cool. Um, yeah, just a, a really cool company. Good luck to them. They've been around for a while. Um, so let's see what they do next in Saudi Arabia, but we should be hearing more from them soon. So, yeah. Richard, shall we? Let's get to our special guest this week, Mr. David Rundell. Great discussion, talking a little bit about King Salman's legacy and um, his uh, time as a ruler of the kingdom. It's really cool. Awesome. I think this is a contribution to the, to the dialogue. It's a good one. Enjoy. Joining us once again on the 966, author, columnist, and former American diplomat, the one and only Mr. David Rundell. Mr. Rundell is author of the acclaimed book on Saudi Arabia, Vision or Mirage, and spent 15 of his 30 total years in service as a diplomat in Saudi Arabia, including as chief of mission. Lately, Mr. Rundell has been active in providing commentary and analysis in the media. Two items from David, which we've referenced recently on the 966, include his recent piece for the online publication Unheard, entitled how MBS wins friends and influences people. And for Newsweek earlier this year, entitled Saudi Arabia's true role in 9-11. Mr. Rundell, thank you for joining us again. Welcome back onto the 966. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Hi, thank David. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. you know, uh, we're, so, we're genuinely excited about your return to the 966. Thank you. And, uh, and, and we're fired up, really actually, that we're devoting this episode to a discussion of King Salman bin Abdulaziz Al Saud. And for our listeners, um, you know, to provide some context, King Salman is 87 years old. Saudi Arabia was established 90 years ago. King Salman has quite literally seen it all. And I guess more importantly, been part of it all. And, and, and as we know, uh, these days, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, King Salman's son, dominates the headlines as, as an enormously active and dynamic agent of change in the kingdom. But, but David, and this is, this is what we're cited about, uh, is it fair to say that King Salman has played a unique and indispensable role in bringing Saudi Arabia to where it is today? If I reflect on it for a moment, I actually, probably some parts of it were indispensable. Yeah, that's actually, that's a strong word to use, but I think it's probably accurate uh, for part of what he did. Um, if you look at his career, uh, which, which his active working career is over a half a century, uh, it's true that he lived through all of the eras of Saudi development from very simple and almost impoverished country to a major player on the world stage, both politically and economically. I think the first thing to say is, though, about throughout most of his career, he was a local and a domestic uh, political figure. He was not a, an international figure uh, because his most of his career was spent as the governor of Riyadh. Uh, he, he was the governor of Riyadh for close to 50 years. And during that time, uh, and you, Riyadh is, he was governor of Riyadh city and then later governor of Riyadh province. So Riyadh is a bit like uh, New York in that there's a, both a city and a state with the same name. And uh, the city 
which he became, if you will, the mayor of, uh, when it was, you know, half a million people at most, uh, is now a city of 7 million. And he oversaw the growth of that city, uh, which at times was the population was growing at seven or eight percent a year, which is very difficult to keep up with the infrastructure on any place that's growing that fast. By and large, you know, the telephones, the electricity, the road system, the sewage system, all of those things uh, stayed uh, up to date and are up to date today. And <clears throat> I suppose the crowning glory of uh, Salman's leadership of cities was uh, the Riyadh Metro, which is a multi-billion dollar project, which is almost complete, which is a connection of uh, subway lines and bus, bus lines that is really going to um, make public transportation in the city um, truly world-class in the 21st century. So I think he, he did a lot there. Um, and he created a system for doing this, which I think reflected his management style. He had something called the um, Riyadh Development Authority, the uh, which has now changed its name slightly, but basically, uh, the it was a an institution which, by and large, reported directly to him and which supervised the growth of the city and which is this system has now been expanded to other cities uh, throughout the kingdom. So I think the first thing you have to say is that he was a competent governor, uh, first of the city and then of the province. And I can say that um, as a very junior officer, um, when I was working on domestic political issues, I used to go sometimes to see to his modulus and it's no exaggeration uh, that he showed up at work, you know, uh, at eight o'clock every morning for 50 years. And he had a public uh, audience where any citizen could come and bring their problems uh, and complaints to him. That was a typical of all Saudi governors. Uh, but I actually went several times and saw this. And, you know, people came with all kinds of this is many years ago, and it's probably more sophisticated today, but uh, people came with all kinds of simple problems, and he dealt with them. So, um, yeah, uh, he, 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 did, he played an important role in, um, as a governor. Uh, he also played an important role um, as a family uh, institution. He was, the, he was not one of the elder brothers of the so-called Suderi Seven, but he was certainly a well-respected one. And uh, he was given the job of being family disciplinarian. Uh, and I think this is well-known and well-documented that um, <clears throat> most of the princes live in Riyadh. He's the governor of Riyadh. So it's up to him to deal with miscreant princes. And he did have several jails, actually three of them, that... Um, where he would put princes who misbehaved. Uh, and so he, and he would also not just put people in jail, but he would deal with them in other disciplinary ways. So he was kind of the family disciplinarian. And that was a role that he did, I think, well, and that he had uh, 
again, he was respected by the family because of the role that he played there. So I think that was the first thing I would say about his historic role. Um, the second thing I would say about his historic role, which um, is very important, actually, is that he recognized what a detriment corruption was to economic development. Uh, he was not, you know, I wouldn't say that he was a visionary of, you know, what should the economy of Riyadh become? I, I don't I don't think that I, I he did a lot for infrastructure, but I don't think he had a vision for what the economy of Riyadh should become in the future. But he did have a vision about not having it be a corrupt place. And one of the roles that the Riyadh Development Authority played in ma managing contracts was to keep them clean by Saudi standards, and really even by any standards. Uh, there was not a lot of corruption. It's well known that, you know, King Salman uh, and his sons were not amongst the richest of the Saudi princes. And um, so uh, this is partly because he was not into uh, graft and corruption as some members of the royal family were. Uh, and this emphasis that he had on the lack of corruption um, manifest itself. Uh, if you look at the um, Riyadh Metro as kind of the apex of his city management role, I think the events of the Ritz-Carlton are sort of the apex of his anti-corruption uh, campaign. And... The idea that they threw people in the Ritz because they it was a power grab. I've spoken about this before. Um, you know, there's a there's a people say, oh, this was a this was seizing power. No, this was not seizing power. By the time of the Ritz episode, uh, power had already been consolidated. There were no no one put in the Ritz was a serious threat to um, the succession at by that point. Um, and it really was about corruption and it really was about sending a signal that nobody's above corruption and that uh, we're serious about um, stopping it. And I think it's fair to say that the king was well aware of uh, who got put in the Ritz. Some of those people had uh, done their crimes or if you will, their malfeasance, whatever, uh, many, many years ago. Uh, and had been out of government for some time. Uh, and so they were being called back and asked to pay back some of the money that they had gotten by questionable means. So uh, I think his role in explicitly making, and, and, and the other point to make about this is that this anti-corruption campaign that's going on in Saudi Arabia um, did not just stop at the Ritz. Uh, you know, the... Um, system now exists. And uh, if you go to Saudi Arabia and talk to pretty much anybody, uh, they will tell you that corruption, uh, both at major scale and minor scale that existed throughout the government has been dramatically reduced. It hasn't been eliminated. It doesn't get eliminated anywhere. Uh, but it has certainly been reduced. And if you talk to Saudi businessmen, they will tell you that uh, it's now much easier to um, get contracts with the government uh, because they're much um, there's much less um, nepotism, wastaism, corruption, whatever word you want to use for it. Um, 
Many contracts are now done online uh, with the bids all uh, available for people to see. So you know who bid what. Uh, it's not somebody opening an envelope in a dark room and giving it to his cousin. Um, now, if you're disqualified the reasons you're disqualified are put online and you can read why you were disqualified it's not some secret letter that you got that said i'm sorry you're not eligible so there's a lot of cleaning up that went on in the saudi government that i think people um should be aware of and i think that uh this uh, at the at the root of it is uh, is this long-standing view of the king about how corruption was a detriment to economic development um, and I think that the uh, third thing and the, the one part which I would say was probably indispensable was his, um, his role in managing succession. Um, as anyone who follows Saudi Arabia knows, it's for, the, for 50 years, 60 years, whatever, uh, through six or seven kings, the transition went from brother to brother to brother to half brother uh, amongst the sons of King Abdulaziz. And while some people will say that the king ended the system, um, I would argue that the system ended itself because they ran out of brothers. And uh, you know, that can't go on forever. So at some point in time, there was going to have to be a transition to the grandsons of King Abdulaziz. And that was always going to be um, difficult, uh, a difficult transition and potentially destabilizing. Uh, I think anyone who follows my views on Saudi Arabia knows that I would argue that Saudi Arabia has been more stable than most people give it credit for. So that would, to summarize, I think he did a good job uh, taking care of the infrastructure of um, Riyadh. I think he did a good and, and, and managing a lot of things in the central province, but the infrastructure being the most obvious. Uh, I think he did a good job on uh, trying to set the mold for stopping corruption. And I think he helped with the succession. Uh, so I think those would be his historic contributions. And so let's, this is, I, I really want to get your take on something. So you've, you've sort of um, established that uh, King Salman has been right at the heart of sort of the governing structure. So as you mentioned, you know, he was a governor of Riyadh for, for almost five decades, by the way, he started as deputy governor of Riyadh at 19, the age, age of 19. So he was immediately put into the, all this. And in that role, as you say, you know, he's hardworking, uh, straight arrow, anti, anti-corruption. Um, he also learned to manage. And by the way, this is a plug for David's book. His book is incredible because he learned to manage, you know, imbalance. So there's a clerical, tribal, merchant, princely interest, all of these things that you cover in your book. So really expertly, you know, you look at the different sort of constituencies in Saudi Arabia. So he's got to learn to manage all these things. And um, so he has these skills. Um, but he also lives in a world, a governing world. And you, you know this better than anybody, David, where essentially everything is stovepiped. 
So, you know, one part of the family has the defense portfolio. One part of the family has the interior portfolio. Another part has the National Guard. Um, and, and it's not really a cohesive thing. Everybody gets their slice. Everybody gets to, you know, it, it's, you know, it, it's essentially, um, it, it's, it's not patrimonial, but it's, a, it's, you know, making a lot of different constituencies happy. That's the primary aim of governance. What, what does Stefan Herzog get over? Plug his book too. He came up with the term of what segmented clientism. It's a rather political science view, but that's what he calls it. In his well, book. and that's much more eloquent than my stovepipe. But, but <laughs> essentially, you have constituencies constituencies that needed to be addressed, uh, and and there's national policy. But you know, you had to take care of these constituencies. So so this is the this is the ruling environment he thrives in. And so we come up to. 2015, when he becomes king, uh, on the passing of King Abdullah in January 2015, and by you know April 2016, Vision 2030 is a, um, you know is launched. But even before that, I mean, he came in and and um, you know when he arrived as king, there were 11 government secretariats. He abolished them all. So now we're just working with two, the Council of Political and Security Affairs and the Council for Economic and Development Affairs. He immediately, he immediately threw himself into refashioning the whole governing structure. Where did this come from? Okay, that's a good question. Um, Salman is a monarchist. He believes in the dynasty and the monarchy. And I think it's fair to say that like, many people in Saudi Arabia um, and many members of the royal family, that's not a completely self-serving idea. Oh, I'm the king, so I'm a monarchist. Yeah, of course, uh, you know, that's that would make sense. But I think that he believes uh, sincerely that the monarchy is the best system for the security and prosperity of the Saudi people. And I don't, to be blunt, I'm not sure I disagree. In fact, I probably would agree. Uh, the American, um, I would almost call it a fetish for democracy and uh, elections. And this comment may get me in trouble. But, you know, the reality is the democracy and uh, elections haven't worked too well in most of the Arab world. Now, you can come up with 100 reasons for that. But um, the reality is that hasn't worked. And I think he believes that the stability which is ultimately the bedrock of any society if it's going to progress, that the stability of Saudi Arabia is best guaranteed by the monarchy, which created the country in the first place and has held it together. And it is a disparate place. It has different regions and different tribes and people with very different uh, cultures, if you will. Uh, so I think he believes in the monarchy, both because he's the king and that's good for him, but also because I think he generally believes that it is uh, useful for the Saudi people. Uh, so I think he believes that you need a strong monarchy, one that is very similar to the way his father ran the show. And therefore, his concentration of power is more a reversion to the way King Abdulaziz ran the country uh, than something that he completely invented himself. I think that he's reversing this policy of stovepiping. That was a factor of the fact that the country was run by 30 brothers, more some more powerful than others, but um, he's saying, no, that's over. 
we're going back to the day where there's a king and I'm the king and I'm in charge and everything goes through me. Uh, and we and this has been manifest in many ways. Um, you know, money is at the end of the day, the ultimate arbiter of power for many of these people. And he has dramatically concentrated you know, the way funding is done. So there is really no more independent funding. Uh, you know, that this prince gets a, has a budget for this ministry and that prince has a budget for that ministry and they all kind of do their own thing. And, and often in many uncoordinated ways. And now there is very much a, um, a central budgeting process with key performance indicators. If you're going to get more money, you have to have met certain goals. You have to report to, and the, the monitors, if you will, of this new system exist in all ministries. Uh, so it has, so he has centralized power very much. So, um, and I, and I think that this is, um, you spoke specifically about the, um, the budget process, if you will, of, um, funding, but, um, you spoke about it, um, with the, with the stove piping of different government ministries, but it, it also goes into to other um other areas uh two of the groups that stakeholder groups that the um king or the the kings dealt with were the religious people and the um the religious institutions and the tribes i think it's fair to say that um salman has made it very clear that uh, he, he felt to some extent, I think it's fair to say that power had drifted away from the monarchy and that these some of these other groups were becoming too powerful. Uh, and the way that he dealt with the religious establishment is a good example of that. I mean, he pretty much shut down the religious police, which is a pretty profound thing to have done in Saudi Arabia. And he has pretty dramatically increased the amount of secular education that you get in the school curriculum, which again is pretty uh, dramatic in Saudi Arabia. And he has clearly put in place people who uh, have a more tolerant and ecumenical even view of Islam uh, in place. And again, that's a quite a surprising thing to have done. Uh, he has dramatically limited the... Um, some of the Saudi charities, which used to give money overseas, again, he, that's now, there used to be many of those, and now it's very centralized in in um, really just one institution, which which he controls quite, um, quite tightly. So this concentration of power uh, has taken place on many levels. Um, tribes, again, you know, tr there's the, the, some of the tribal leaders have had their their stipends terminated. Okay, there were tribal leaders got paid, uh, and some of that has stopped. Uh, again, that's rather a profound thing uh, in terms of Saudi, um, the way the Saudi system works. So he's made it very clear that you know the monarchy is the key um, institution. Essentially, and by the way, that's a really interesting point. Of uh, regarding his sense that uh, Ibn Saud, King Abdulaziz, the founder of Saudi Arabia's model for monarchy, was better 
to achieve the goals in, in, in mind, which is stability and security and prosperity for his people, is better than the, the, the one that existed at the time he ascended to, to be king. You know, the, as you say, the, the, the segmented clientism, according to Stefan Hertog, but the stovepiping. No, it's, that's exactly right. I think he felt quite, and I would, I'm not, I think I'd probably agree with him, that the, um, the system as it existed when he came to power, A, did not have a centralized plan, which Vision 2030 is very much a centralized plan, and I think, a, by and large, a pretty good plan. Uh, so he wanted a centralized plan, and he, the other problem with the way it was, the stovepiping, is that it lent itself to all kinds of corruption, uh, which, I've, as I say, is something that he was dead set against. So I think he wanted a centralized, less corrupt system, and he felt the way to do that was to have a more centralized um, authority, which he has done, and his son has followed in that with that model. And it's it's fascinating. This is one of the conundrums about Saudi Arabia, and one of the reasons why it's so interesting to all three of us. Um, so you have essentially have a monarch who says, "Okay." I want to revert to the traditional role of how monarchy is, and it ends up with a more unified plan. So you've got the, you know, sort of harking back to traditions, but then the result is essentially more progressive policies. And you've talked about it, secularizing education and moderating Islam. Uh, certainly the economy has been uh, liberalized considerably. But you, you know, any number of steps you can say is, oh, these are consistent with a more liberal view. And liberal is a wrong term. That's not that's not what I mean. But you know what I mean? It's kind of a, it's, it's against these juxtapositions of things in Saudi Arabia that are so interesting. So here's a very conservative guy who thinks this is how a monarchy should be. And then, but the, the result is liberalization of the society in many ways, you know, any number of ways. No, I think that's true. That that's if, I don't know if the, if irony is the right word, paradox, whatever whatever uh, term you <laughs> want to use. But um, it is um, Saudi Arabia is at I think you could say it very succinctly. It is more authoritarian. Certainly, power is more concentrated and centralized than it was before. But at the same time, it has become more in line with global norms in terms of the social uh, practices in the country. And and we I think we've talked about that. Many of your guests have talked about that. I mean, the dramatic and uh, you could all, uh, profound is not a word I would use too often, but profound changes in the social structure in Saudi Arabia, uh, not just in the terms in the in the role of women is quite unrecognizable from what it was. So I think, you know, they are trying to walk a middle path that most Saudis, some more than others, but at the end of the day, most Saudis find acceptable. And I've talked about that in the book that, you know, they lead social change at a pace, which is acceptable to most people. Some think it should go faster. Some think it should go slower. Some think it should go not at all. Uh, but they found a way to, to, navigate that so I, I i would like to pick your brain on something that i i, we, I think we find interesting you're, you're so we're they're looking around uh you know and obviously the sectarianism and the factionalism of iraq and lebanon is not attractive you know the the corruption in iran and that ruling uh system is not attractive it, you know egypt is not attractive um but it's been a fascinating exercise over the last few years to watch saudi arabia sort of 
reconceive its its narrative. And you know, even when you were there, they didn't really uh, celebrate National Day till you know early in the aughts. You know, so they have National Day. It's ninety years so now. National Day is a big day, but they've also introduced Founders Day. I think nationalism is is what's happening in Saudi Arabia, not Arab nationalism, Saudi nationalism. And I think that's right. And I think that it is becoming more important. And uh, people now see themselves as both good Muslims and good Saudis, which I don't think would have been the case, you know, 50 years ago. Author, columnist, former American diplomat, Mr. David Rundell. Thank you so much for your time. This was a great conversation. We'd love having you on this program and we hope to see you again very soon. I look forward to talking to you for a few minutes afterwards. That was our conversation with David Rundell. Thanks to him for his time. Just awesome. R- really good perspective on everything going on today, which is just, we, we really appreciate it. He's he's super plugged in, has been doing it for decades. His book is amazing. So just, we enjoyed that. He brings a great perspective and has, he's got historical you know presence in Saudi. So he's got a, he's got a timeline understanding of all this. So it's a great conversation. Mm-hmm. Richard, shall we? Let's get to... Yella. Saudi in a minute. Yella. Yella. Everyone's just like, oh. <laughs> Yella. You know, num- Sorry, Good. really quickly though, we don't we don't get a ton of people saying that that's really annoying to them. So have we had we, have we had anybody say it? No. But nobody <laughs> is like that's funny either. <laughs> so like <laughs> <laughs> you Please know, weigh that, in if you want us to stop, but we're not going to stop unless. Uh, yeah, you know, I guess that's representative of a lot of things in my life. You know, I think it's funny, but other people have no comment. Who knows? You know, <laughs> who knows is right. Um, Yella number one uh, during the G20 summit held in New Delhi, just recently completed, a significant development unfolded as the United States, India, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, France. Germany, Italy, and the EU, European Union, introduced the India-Middle East-Europe corridor, known as the IMEC, I-M-E-C. The IMEC represents a multi-mode transit corridor spanning over 3,000 miles, and it consists of two corridors. The eastern corridor links India to the Arabian Gulf, while the northern corridor connects the Arabian Gulf to Europe. Upon its completion, as outlined in the White House in a White House Memorandum of Understanding, this connectivity project will establish a dependable and cost-effective cross-border ship-to-rail transit network. It will complement existing maritime and road transport routes, facilitating the seamless movement of goods and services between India, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Israel, and Europe. I think it needs a cooler name like belt and road has not that that's a cool name but this is clearly a effort to compete with china's belt and road initiative and congrats to all the participants here because everyone's going to win with this going in this follows the biden administration's interest in making investments like this especially in this region it's taken a while to sort of get going but you know this is basically the u.s belt and road so maybe they call it that, although that's not great branding. But um, this built on a theme too, so I'm glad you chose this one because you know this is more of Saudi Arabia as being 
not just Saudi Arabia, because this is this goes from India to, to Europe. So it's, you know, uh, many countries are involved here, but Saudi Arabia is right in the middle of it. And so that's sort of a theme we've had on the show, Richard, recently is Saudi Arabia as a nexus point. And it's always been that way, as you pointed out last week, but it's a focus now. And, and there's, a, you know, more energy in that. And then just last thing I want to add to this big win for the U.S.-Saudi relationship, which increasingly is building on these commercial level wins and our interest base between the two parties. So we, the hosts of this show, love seeing that. And that's spot on. And that's that's the beauty of this. And the parallels to the, the, the Belt and Road, BRI, Belt and Road Initiative is, is fair enough. Um, but we've talked for some time on the 960s, basically since its inception, about U.S. needing to broaden its, its, uh, its uh, tools in engaging with the region. And it can't just all be political and security and that sort of thing. And, uh, and you know, this is where China has made its hay in the region with economic investment. And that's one reason, obviously, is it's China is an important, you know, destination for, you know, energy exports and that sort of thing. But India, you know, for Saudi Arabia is its second largest trading partner. The beauty of IMAC, um, and I could live with, maybe I can get you. IMAC, IMAC is fine. Yeah. Now that you say it like yeah. that, I just yeah, needed I you get... to say it. Yeah. Yeah. There you yes. go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it places Saudi Arabia right at the middle, you know, right where it sees itself, you know, Saudi Arabia sees itself as a nexus between Europe, Africa, and, and Asia. Um, and it recognizes, it empowers India in a big way. It also, as opposed to the BRI, which has some onerous aspects to it, especially in terms of lending and debt and that sort of thing. A lot of countries have gotten into trouble. As a matter of fact, Italy recently said, we want no, we want nothing to do with the BRI. We're, we're stepping away from it. Um, you know, the IMEC is going to give autonomy to participating countries to pursue their interest. I mean, it basically, they have their own sovereignty. They want to get involved because they want to get involved. Um, but it, it meets, again, it meets these countries, and let's talk specifically about Saudi Arabia, exactly where it wants to be, which is, you know, impacting its its geostrategic position in terms of trade and commerce um, and, you know, improving logistics costs, you know, this will have so many knock-on effects. You know, the main memorandum didn't mention that um, sort of a side objective of this is a is an agreement between the U.S. and Saudi to develop uh, transit corridors that will facilitate transportation of renewable electricity, clean hydrogen. So basically transmission cables and gas pipelines. So this is not just sort of a logistics move freight transport thing. It's also a corridor for hydrogen and and renewable electricity and these sorts of things, you know, connecting grids. Again, all things are top priorities for Saudi Arabia. So this is a, a congrats to Joe Biden and congrats to this administration for meeting partners, uh, you know, commercial allies in some ways, um, key strategic players, meeting them where they are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and coming forward with things that are really attractive to them on their merits alone. They're not doing it because it, it, it helps their security situation. They're not doing it because they were compelled to by the U.S. They're doing it because, hey, this is a deal I want to get in on. 
Let's work this with Saudi Arabia and, and the U.S. And then when you throw in the fact, and this is, again, congrats to Joe Biden and the administration, you know, it, it includes, you know, UAE, France, Germany, Italy, and the EU, and obviously India. I mean, this is a big, big deal. Very exciting. This is a big deal. It should have been a one big thing for either of us. We just knew we were going to talk about it, but this is such a huge deal. And what's really cool is you kind of look at this map and it's, it you know, from wherever the satellite would be looking down and seeing all these countries, 30,000 feet, more than that, um, you know, from space, <laughs> the view from space on this is that there's so little resistance to this path. It's sea and then rail, and the rail goes through Saudi Arabia, which is flat and for the most part, you know, doesn't have, I mean, if you look at Iran, Iran has, it would be impossible to do this through because it's all mountainous. It's like Colorado. Right. This is a, a path of very small or very minimal resistance that will absolutely open up the economies of the EU, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and India, and others in this, um, and Pakistan, and others in this sort of, you know, corridor. It It is a big win for Joe Biden. You have to say that. And we also should talk about what probably everybody wanted to talk about when this was first starting to come out, which was the handshake between the crown prince and Joe Biden. It was good to see that. And it was good to see Modi kind of come on over top of it, you know, yeah, yeah. to kind of seal the deal there. I, th I think that's a good move. Um, he, yeah, I, you know, Joe Biden kicked butt at the G20. I mean, she wasn't there. Putin wasn't there, but he came with a plan. And yep. he, you know, you know, the, the thing that, you know, Joe Biden does the same thing with Ukraine, same thing with NATO. You know, he he uh, he insists that his administration go through the right channels and put in the groundwork, lay the groundwork, you know, establish communications, set up these things up. So I, I know this has been talked about. And and you work this back a little bit. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's been happening in the region is there's been, been more diplomatic dialogue. Obviously, we see the Iran Saudi, um, you know. Uh, detente, in other words, in essence, um, you see Saudi Arabia reaching out to Turkey uh, and, you know, Syria is back in the Arab League. Any number of, of diplomatic things going on. You see the Abraham Accords, which have, you know, have their issues. But this sort of came out of the I2U2, which is the Indian, Israel, U.S., UAE ongoing dialogue. Um, and, you know, so, so, you know, if you're talking ideas are probably going to come up mm -hmm. and some of them might be good and some of them might, you know, merit further exploration and some of them might result in uh, let's expand this and, 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 and let's call it IMEC and let's make it happen. So, I mean, these, this is the result of a lot of good things going on at the moment. And I'm really encouraged by the U S Saudi dialogue because there's a lot of it and it seems to be about things that really matter to both countries and aren't specific to defense or oil. Yes. Yes, times 100 to that point. Um, I mean, we're talking about things that, well, they're talking about things that mean something that are not just, you know, ideas. These are real commercial things. These are real commercial opportunities. And they're going through with them. They're not letting these, you know, recent uh, recent downturn in U.S.-Saudi relations at the beginning of the Biden administration just set the tone for the rest of the administration. They're just going forward with it. And it's there's a lot uh, we could get into. And this is we are going to be talking about this a lot more, I'm sure. But, you know, I just looking at this map and, and looking at sort of how the people are calling it the new spice route 
which I think is probably <laughs> not the best. Do you know is, why? Is, um, is Alula on it? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a frankincense stop. Um, <laughs> no, but it is cool. So like, it's interesting that Italy did not want to be a part of this. I know there was a massive Saudi delegation, trade delegation in Italy last week. And well, I think they're thrown in with the EU, but but Italy didn't want to be part of the BRI. Okay. Oh, a part of the BRI, excuse me. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Italy wants out of the BRI any commitments that were made by, by previously. So this map, though, appears to go around Italy unless right. uh, no, it, it it has a stop in Italy and goes to France. Okay, so that's why I was confused. Go. I was I was like, well, why don't they want to be a part of this? It's closer, and you know, uh, but you know, who who knows? Um, but anyway, really, really a good one. Huge story. I'm sure we'll get more and more on it. I, I you know. I read the MOU that came out and it was, first of all, you know, it was from the state department, but the font was like comic sans or something like that. And I was like, this doesn't look, there's no signatures on it, but I was like, this, this looks fake, but I'm sure it wasn't, but uh, there's going to be a lot of stuff that are formed around this and we'll start to kind of explore it as it comes out. Sorry about the long yellow there, everybody, but this is a huge no, it's a good one. deal. It's an important one. Yellow number two, Saudi Arabia is working on its own major commercial cruise line brand designed for those with quote, Arabian preferences. Arroyo Cruises sets sail next year with a single ship formerly known as World Dream, the last remaining ship of the struggling Dream Cruises company. The PIF is the new owner of the ship now known as Monera for $300 million at an auction in December last year. It comes under management of the PIF's cruise company, Cruise Saudi, and acts as a showcase for its cruise liner brand Arroyo. Uh, this is cool. So cool. Saudi. I mean, I guess they acquired in March, early this year, uh, and they're going all in. They've hired a bunch of top flight companies to basically refit it, refurbish 98% of uh, quote unquote guest facing venues in the ship. Um, you know, they've got one MGM, MJM Maritime for, for, for doing that. I guess MGM Maritime has worked on the Queen Mary 2, you know, Virgin Voyages, Rich Carlton Yacht Collection. So it's going to be a luxury experience. Um, uh, but again, it, this is also happening so fast because we, we've covered on this show, we've covered in the Sustic Review, you know, as as uh, Saudi Arabia has rolled up uh, agreements with cruise lines, existing cruise lines to come and work, uh, you know, the Red Sea ports, um, you know, because they want to build that cruise industry because tourism is big. And, 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 you know, just, you know, that keeps rolling ahead, but here we're going to start our own cruise and we have this, you know, brand new vessel. Um, yeah, they just keep rolling along, don't they? Interesting too. They got on, they, they had, and I'm trying to find an updated um, percentage here, but they have an 8.2% 8, 8 stake in Carnival. And there yeah. was a report last year that they were in talks to acquire a, an arm from Carnival. Um yeah, very, very interesting and a, and a good story. It's interesting as well because cruise ships are not environmentally friendly at all. And I know the whole Red Sea area that there's like a huge focus on that being part of the future. So it'll be interesting how those two things kind of come together. But for now, yeah. Saudi Arabia is in the cruise business and yeah. uh, that's super interesting. Also, you can get an, a cruise with an Arabian preference on only one cruise line now, and that's a Royal yeah, Cruises. So, Arroya. Yeah, Arroya. Yeah. So interesting. Yella number three, uh, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are in talks to secure metals in Africa needed to help them with their energy transitions. 
Uh, this is reported by the Wall Street Journal. Um, a state-backed Saudi venture would buy stakes in mining assets worth $15 billion in African countries such as the Democratic Republic of Congo, Guinea, and Namibia, which will permit U.S. companies to have rights to buy some of the production. Monera, we've just heard that, it's a common name and a popular name. The joint venture between PAF and Madden is also concentrated on nickel, lithium, and iron ore. The White House is looking for financial support from other sovereign wealth funds in the area, but according to the journal, negotiations with Saudi Arabia have advanced the most. Monera the cruise or Monera the metals investor? Well, we, got to, we, we, did, we did a yell on Monera the metals because of their investment in Vail, you know, the right. Brazilian uh, mining company. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, this... This is another U.S.-Saudi cooperation outside of energy and and security. It is sort of energy related as a lot of these investments and acquisitions of nickel and lithium and cobalt are related to batteries. So for EV batteries, so it's sort of energy related. Um, yeah, I mean, this is this is interesting. It seems mysterious to me. We, the U.S. didn't say anything about it. So there, we have this report, but it's kind of hard to read between the lines. This paragraph is interesting. This is from the journal report. Saudi Arabia would likely have more flexibility to invest in countries where corruption is rampant, insulating U.S. companies from that risk. The kingdom is also less bound by ESG concerns that crimp other investors' ability to deploy capital there. I don't know if that's correct. That's That seemed like a stretch. I just... That was in the Wall Street Journal piece. But anyway, so well, this I is mean, an interesting thing. you often hear from our, our anti-corruption regulations are extremely tight. And mm -hmm. this is not to suggest that others are lax. But you, you U.S. companies regularly complain that they're put at a disadvantage because the, the reporting and the corruption, anti-corruption regulations are so tight. So I'm not sure how it applies, but that wouldn't be an unusual comment for U.S. companies working abroad. I mean, you know, from their perspective to the point where we really have, you know, we can't just conduct normal business, much less, you know, you know, try to bribe or extort anything. You know, that's not even, that's, we know we don't want to do that. But, you know, it, it's so strict that we have difficulties with just a normal course of business that other company, countries can do. Mm -hmm. um, but again, on this, you know, I, you know, my instinct is to say, see IMAC. It's another example of U.S. and Saudi Arabia working together on common interests. And I love the last, the last line of that is negotiations with Saudi Arabia have advanced the most. Awesome. Great. Let's move ahead. Let's keep yeah. talking yeah. about other things we can do together that are uh, you know, economically advantageous to everybody involved. And you saw this week, and we're not going to really get into it in full this week, another thing that we're going to table for a subsequent week, but the U.S. and Bahrain just signed a sort of security economic pact that some are saying yeah. could be more of a model for the region. It's interesting to know if that is coming for Saudi, but um, I'm just going to tease that and then not say anything else about it. Well, so, next week, you know, it's week, that, maybe, you, yeah. know, you know, this is one of the great things about, you know, you know, the nine success and this topic of Saudi Arabia. I mean, there's a lot of places that just don't have this much going on. Yeah. I'm talking about Saudi Arabia and the region. I mean, this, you know, when our issue is not finding topics. Our issue was winnowing down topics. Yeah. There's so much going on. And then, you know, uh, July and August, a little slower, but this was like this July and August this year in Saudi Arabia would have been the most busy months in previous years. And then yeah. things pick up in September now. It's just, yeah, it's bananas. So um, yellow number four, Nor Riyadh, the largest light 
art festival in the world will return for its third edition in Riyadh, with the festival running from November 30th to December 16th, 2023, and the exhibition from November 30th, 2023 to March 2nd, 2024. The citywide festival will illuminate Riyadh with large-scale light art installations, building projections, performances, and more. Artworks will be displayed in public spaces across five hubs. Noor Riyadh 2023 will also feature over 500 community engagement programs for all visitors and families alike throughout the duration of the festival and the exhibition. Um, we threw this in there. I love light festivals. I don't care where it is. I love this. I mean, you're, I would. You're a light I, I want to get there to see this. This is between December. It's uh, from November to March. I want to see this just because I, I and, and they do such a good job. I mean, when I went to see Boulevard World, um, which is a family entertainment theme park in in Riyadh, it was brilliantly executed. I'm and and as I mentioned on the show before, I wasn't going there with family. I mean, families, kids would just love it. I was just going as some you know tall white guy wandering around, you know, some American who just has nothing else to do. I did, but you know, I, I really wanted to see it. I was blown away. It was so well done, and it was so entertaining and so uh, delightful to walk around. And and it's, it, it was huge, expansive. I guess what I'm saying is, is you know, the the quality. The production quality of things going on in Saudi Arabia these days is really high. And I'm guessing this Nor Riyadh is going to be awesome. I can't imagine it being shabby in any way because they are batting right. 1,000 <laughs> when it comes to these sort of events and festivals. And we talked last week about tourism in Saudi Arabia. One of the things that is attractive for people to visit are these seasons, the Nor Riyadh, these yeah, yeah. festivals and and you know, for business travelers, conferences and other things going on, but you're going to be there for the, you know, FII or whatever it's going to be. And then, you know, there's these other things going around in Riyadh. You're like, Hey, this is actually pretty amazing. So yeah, um, this is, this is cool. And yeah, Turkey else shake doesn't do anything, uh, <laughs> without going all the way with it. So, um, you know, Riyadh season should be lit this year and as, as will plop, more Riyadh and plop nor Riyadh right on top of that. Nice. So, um, should be awesome. Nice, nice play on words. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so it's the coffee. <laughs> Yellow number five, Saudi Arabia's new Red Sea International Airport is on track to open this year along with the first three resorts at the Red Sea destination. Uh, Saudi Arabian Airlines, Saudia will become the first airline to operate out of the airport. Initially, the airport will open for domestic flights to and from Riyadh and later Jeddah before expanding to handle international flights uh, from 2024. Just two hotel operators are entrusted to introduce Saudi Arabia's, quote, untouched, unquote, Maldives rivaling Red Sea to international guests. And those two are Marriott and IHG. Three of the planned 50 hotels at the 50 billion giga project opened this year, 2023, a St. Regis, a Ritz-Carlton Reserve from Marriott, and a Six Senses from Oh, sorry, IHG. So that's the St. Regis and Rich Carlton from Marriott and Six Senses from IHG. Yeah, those are the two hotel brands that I personally prefer because there are so many of them all over the world that you can easily rack up points with them and they offer really everything, you know, up and down. But, you know, what's, I mean, John Pagano from the Red Sea is just crushing it. I mean, he just every week is announcing some new thing and then following through on it. It is so cool to see this red thing, red sea thing take shape. 
honestly, we've said it before on the show, but follow John Pagano on Twitter or LinkedIn. And it's just like, you're going to get, it's like you're getting a weekly briefing on how much stuff is going on there. I'm, I would like to go and see it. It's still too early, but it's too far of a drive from Jeddah. So it's cool that they'll have their airport out this year, but yeah, I mean, they're ahead of schedule with this and we've talked about it on the show, but like, it's going to just be so awesome when this is all done because this will actually be again bringing it back to tourism this will be one of those places where if you're looking for you know sandy beaches and relaxation and resort style vacationing well, you're going to get it in saudi arabia for the first time it's going to be here which is amazing a true, so truly a true experience sure yeah, yeah truly yeah. different experience yeah i have a little bit of john pagano envy I mean, yeah. he's living life. I mean, you know, out there in these beautiful air, you know, environments, you know, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen him in a suit. I mean, no, he seems, he's not a suit guy. He's no. casual <laughs> and just digging life, going out and doing really neat stuff. Um, yeah. And I, I, you know, we follow the Red Sea project from the beginning and it's, it's hurtling to, in, you know, launch later this year. It's been fascinating to watch. It's sort of ahead of the curve of other giga, giga projects in terms of at least getting out uh, and, and being launched. So it's it's really fun to see it. And yes, I would love to go there. It would be so cool to go there. Good good on John Pagano. Um, he is, of course, welcome to join us on the 966 at a time of his pleasure and leisure, yes. which we imagine is either non-existent or quite minimal. And but as, as any any viewer of the 966 knows, no no shirt and you know coat tie required. No, no, you don't have to dress up to be on the show. <laughs> no. um, not not at all. <laughs> That's not our <laughs> our thing. Yeah. Yella number six. Right, it went really fast this week, Richard. Um, <laughs> the company formed. Oh, this is a good one. I'm excited. Okay. The company formed <laughs> you, to, you love these things. Yes, we are back. <laughs> we are back. The company formed to build the kilometer-high Jeddah Tower in the Saudi city of Jeddah has restarted work on the scheme and has drawn up a list of contractors who may complete the structure. A source close to the project told the news agency Mead that the scheme was, quote, back in full motion. We should note Really quickly, Colin Foreman, editor of Mead, was on the program two weeks ago. Great conversation. Really uh, it's good. too bad that this didn't time up well. The Jeddah Economic Company is a consortium organized by Prince Awulid bin Talal, grandson of Abdulaziz Al Saud, the first king of Saudi Arabia. In 2014, his kingdom holding company convened a group of investors to build a tower more than a kilometer high. At the time, it was called the Kingdom Tower, which you know everybody knows is the name of the tower in Riyadh. Okay, this is awesome. Richard, kicking it over to you. What's, what do you think? I knew you'd be fired up about yes. this. You love the big mega projects. I was laughing. What was it? Was it with Colin Foreman we were talking about? And your first question was, one of your questions was, what about the North Pole? Will the North Pole get built? You what know, do you know? Yeah. The yeah, huge get, tower that's that tower. Yeah. perspective tower uh, in Riyadh. Uh, yeah. So I thought you'd get a kick out of this. This is pretty cool. I mean, it'd be fun to get it restarted. And, you know, it's sitting there. Uh, you know, I guess it's a third done. Um, uh, it's a who's who of contractors who are looking to bid on it. You know, I mentioned the 14. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. And and clearly, you know, uh, Awalid, you know, who was a print primary in, in, you know, launching this 
you know, his, I think he's, you know, he's been in good graces anyway, but um, you know, it's, it's fun to see this back and going. Um, so we'll watch it with interest. I know you'll watch it with great interest. You love these skyscrapers. I do. And the new Mukaab and things like that. The reason why I like them is not because they make necessarily economic sense, although they often do, but because they then become iconic in a way that very casual observers will be touched by because most people are not like following Saudi Arabia that closely. But if they know that the world's tallest building is there, you, you know, that it goes on placemats that kids eat on. It just reaches so many different like, places. And you're like, oh, the world's tallest building. Yeah, it's in uh, Jeddah. I don't know. You know, it's like, I don't know where that is, but it just, you know, things like this actually like have unbelievable reach. And you look at the Burj in Dubai and I think, you know, people knew of Dubai before and Dubai would pretty much be the same without it. But that is this that is like the epicenter now of of all that is going on in Dubai, in my opinion. I mean, the most expensive and coolest hotels and everything else are right kind of around the Burj. Would it be that way without the Burj? I don't know. But like, you know, the Burj lights up on New Year's and it just it's ultra soft power that just has un- immeasurable reach. And so, yeah, I love these things like that because also they give you a reason to visit and there are sites to be to to see and to behold. I mean, you know, Empire State Building and Sears Tower in, in uh, Chicago. I mean, just, I don't know. I, you're right, though. It's a little bit irrational. I love things like this. I'm glad to see this restarted, too, because for, what, five years, it's been inactive and sort of becomes the first thing that people reference when they're like, well, they, you know, they're always talking about doing these things, but look at the Jetta Tower, you know, and it's like, that's, first of all, not really fair because they are following through on virtually every single promise they've made. But yeah, I mean, you know, this is going to be, and I mean, it will dominate the skyline in Jeddah. There's nothing even close to this. So yeah, I mean, it doesn't say there's no timeline, you know, I guess, um, what, 2014. So here we are 10 years, you know, I, I don't know how high up it's gone. It's been paused, but it's, it's, you know, it's still, you can still see it. Anyway, I, I'm pumped about this. So <laughs> looks cool. I mean, the Burge, the Burge is, is a great parallel. I mean, it has, the Burge is, you know, one of the largest tourism sites in the world. I mean, 17 million visitors a year. It generates roughly over 600 million each year in ticket sales. 600 million in ticket sales, just people to come and see the Burge, because it is a fascinating structure. It's really cool. I mean, it's, I mean, your point is spot on. It is iconic. Um, so it'll be fascinating if it gets built because it will it will be a place on the map that people will know about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean it's a it's a it's nice it's exciting that it's restarted. Yeah, I, this other other comment to make about this. I love that the engineering becomes so complex that you need solutions that are then applied elsewhere around the world. So like for the Burj, I think it was really hard to get cement to get that high up that quickly. So you had to get innovative about what you would do with the cement and how, how long and how long it would cure and all these other things. For the Kingdom Tower in Jeddah, I remember seeing that it's really difficult to have a building this tall without it just sinking into the water and it's just sinking down like 10 feet every year because it's so massive and it's sand all around it. So, um, it, yeah, it, I mean, it, if you want to get it done, call Bechtel. <laughs> They'll do it for you. <laughs> it won't be well, cheap. They're going to get the job done. So. 
I mean, that's a good point. You do, you know, it really stretches your 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 thinking and your capacity in terms of engineering. Uh, and I guess the guys, the the company that designed the Burge is the company that designed this tower. Mm-hmm. So they're back in, you know, they're back on it. Uh, so exciting news. That's really cool. It would be interesting to see if they will be talking to the media at any point, because we, I'm sure we could reach out to somebody from the Jetta Economic Company and have a show totally dedicated to this because I would be so stoked for that. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, if I'm the media, if I'm the media advisor, having lain dormant for five years, I wouldn't be talking to anybody. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just start building. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That was a really great and fun episode, especially when we end with mega projects like that. Maybe we make that a theme because that was awesome. Good on them for getting it restarted good on us for just being on quite the run here mr wilson so well done to you we will be back of course next week and this is a blast i look forward to this every week you know we prep every day but i look forward to getting together and cabbing with you every week and and and, you know nine times out of ten we don't have a all our guests are great all our grass, you know, we learn a lot. And this was another great one. Sometimes we don't have guests. It's just you and me. So the nine times out of 10 isn't a commentary on the guests. Nine times out of 10 episodes when we have a guest, it's an added bonus that we get to educate ourselves even further. That's the best thing about this. And I think a lot of feedback we get is people that appreciate the fact that we're sort of just trying to understand it too. Like people are all, there's no like expert, like there's, for example, this is great. There's no expert on the Jetta Tower. There's whoever is the CEO of the Jetta Economic Company knows more than other people outside of that. We're kind of all just trying to figure it out. So that's what we're doing here. We're sort of talking things through. We're hypothesizing about things and trying to get to the bottom of it. And I think people like that journey. I don't know, whatever we're doing, people seem to be liking, so we're just gonna keep doing it. So yeah, I completely agree. In the last two weeks, um, I've had two Saudis who are profoundly knowledgeable. Saudis, you know, uh, you know, middle-aged Saudis who have been around, pay attention, know a lot, lugged in. Two of them have said, you know, I learned things listening to your show, mm-hmm. which is the highest compliment. Absolutely. The highest compliment. And yeah, so we're here. We'll see you guys next week. Richard, thank you very much. Thank you. You're the man. You the man.